everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. As always, this is your host, Nick, and I'm coming back to you with yet another composer interview. Today, my guest is Nathan McKay, who's actually relatively new on the scoring scene, but has had a maybe decade-long career that's been very successful in producing electronic music and DJing at some of the biggest dance venues around the world. A couple years ago, I think in 2020, Nathan ended up scoring the HBO show Industry and is back for season two, which just wrapped up maybe a month, a month and a half ago, and has a score coming out, hopefully, later this month. It's a really cool electronic score that has semblances of Nathan's dance background, but takes things much further and in much different directions as well. It's actually a score that, although it hasn't been released yet, I got an advance listen, and that's what sold me on doing the interview before I'd even seen a second of the show. And frankly, I love when that happens. It it gets me really excited. But that said... It's actually a really good show, too. I highly recommend watching it. It's a good sort of work drama that, although set in the world of the London finance industry, doesn't really require knowing anything about finance at all. So Nathan and I discuss industry, discuss a bit of his music background, and then, as always, get into far-flung topics like the state of the music industry broadly, or his love of David and Thomas Newman scores. You can find more about Nathan on his social media, and of course be sure to keep your ears open for the official industry score release, with the vinyl coming tentatively in early 2023. And as always, you can find more on me, the film score, on various social media or my website, and if you're enjoying these, be sure to leave a rating or review on wherever you're listening. But until then, and most importantly, sit back and enjoy. Nathan, thank you so much for joining me. How have you been? Yeah, I'm great. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. You know, I every time I have someone who's more, has more of like an electronic or DJing background, I have one of my friends who's a DJ in Detroit, and I always have to run their names by her to see whether she is like familiar with their music. So I asked her about you and she was like a big fan. So that was, oh, wow, that was okay. the, uh, the DJ stamp of approval. I feel like I'm more in scoring world now, to be honest, but like I often feel I'm straddling between these two worlds. And it's funny because people in DJ world are like, I mean, I understand this firsthand where it's like you listen to scoring music and you're like, oh my God. And then you listen to talk to people about in scoring world and, you know, they think DJing is this like mystical thing. Whereas now that I'm in scoring world and I think it's a much more complex musical experience, I guess. For me, it's a lot more complex than syncing, you know, two records in a club. But for them, <laughs> at least composers I've spoken to about DJing, they're like, oh my gosh, like crazy. And I mean, you mentioned that you're straddling both. Is there a plan to really just do scoring full-time and that's that? Or do you kind of prefer having your toes dipped in both worlds? Uh, Yeah, I like to have my toes in as many ponds, worlds as I can, I suppose. So at the moment, I've just finished my next, like, artist album, I guess, Mm. which is, you know, completely independent of my score work, though I'm sure at this point it's been influenced by it. Last weekend, I had my first DJing gig i guess in many many months in lisbon which was great 
but I have so many scoring projects on the go at the moment that it's, I think it's impossible for me to tour like I once did. Mm. And then if I'm honest, like the pandemic kind of took the wind out of my sails in that regard. I, I will get back into it next year for sure. Once these projects I'm working on now are kind of wrapped up, but being so immersed in all the scoring for the last year and a half, it really has, you know, I feel more inspired than I ever have musically. And yeah, it's just such a different workflow than being on your own writing dance music at your own pace, putting it out whenever you put it out and then DJing it. Um, it's just a very different thing. And I've really taken to it. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I mean, was it, was it a weird experience going from DJing or doing your solo artist music where like that music is the, not just at the forefront, but it's the sole thing people are listening to or focusing on versus, you know, moving into something like industry where in any scoring project, the music's typically in the background, but like in industry, there's, there's a lot of really underscore music that's heavily subsidiary so was was that like a, a weird transition at all for you no not really i mean when you make dance music which i guess i was mostly known for before you know you're making it to be as upfront as possible because people want to dance to it in a club mm -hmm. but with my artist albums which i have a few at this point they're very layered and there's a lot of i guess you can't call it underscore because it's an album but it's a lot of sequences and spots where in my mind it's kind of you have to be more patient and test the patience of the listener but i know most people don't even listen to it on spotify they just skip to the next part i guess but um i'd like to think that when they hired me for the first season of industry they probably heard those parts of my music and were like oh well he clearly has the patience and understanding to like not just have to do a big banging thing all the time i love the idea of like interplay between dialogue and underscore because i think you can just do so many interesting interesting things with underscore and ultimately a lot of the details in the underscore and industry as a, any show or movie gets hidden a little bit by the dialogue mm -hmm. and sound effects or whatever but it's kind of fun for me to listen to and i i know there's a little twinkle or i know there's a little like weird sound and i mean maybe some people can hear it it's like one of these things i think about a lot is um you know pink floyd dark side of the moon mm -hmm. and there's just so many little hidden things in that album when i started to discover them after years of listening to that album like when I heard Great Gig in the Sky one day, I suddenly heard someone says, like, hear a whisper, and then you die. There's, like, this <laughs> whisper. And now whenever I hear that song, I can't unhear it. And I kind of think the same with Underscore. It's, like, once you hear the little hidden melodies under that and stuff, you, you can't unhear them. And I, I really like that mysterious part of Underscore. And I, I think it's it's an interesting point, too, because it also depends on how you're listening or how you're watching. Like, my speakers and my headphones are, like, much higher quality than like a typical TV speaker. So yeah, yeah. listening to music or like watching it on a computer versus watching something on TV, there's just going to be elements that you know, maybe are going to be more upfront or you don't notice. And in one sense, it's too bad that like it can water down the experience. With that example from Dark Side of the Moon, I do love when you listen to an album for the 50th time and you go, oh crap, how did I miss this sound? How do I never ever hear it before? Yeah, completely. I mean, it's all relative, too. I mean, I try to listen to music I like with my headphones, and I think for me, like, oh, well, yeah, me, people are missing details, and then I'll go to someone else's house, and they have some hi-fi system that's, mm. you know, $10,000, and it's they scoff at my headphones, and then they probably have <laughs> someone above them, and it's like, like, we saw Dune. My girlfriend and I went to see Dune in the theater when it first came out, and it was mm -hmm. like, you know, this huge sound system, and you could catch every little detail, and... 
I don't know if you can get much bigger than that, but I'm sure for some people listening to it on like, you know, a pair of $3,000 headphones, they can pick up even more. So I don't know. Even with writing my own music, I listen to everything just on like laptop speakers at a certain point because I know the majority, let's be real, the majority of people probably are watching and listening, myself included sometimes, are watching or listening to music on a laptop speaker. And you have to like sort of mix things these days to um, bring out the best that can be on that system as well which is actually quite a fun little challenge in itself. How does that change the experience then, or like the the actual process of writing and, and mixing? Um, I guess at a certain point, you also have to just like be able to let go and be like, if the watcher slash listener can't pick up on the bassy tones or melodies, that's their loss and there's nothing you can do about it. But for instance, in the first season of Industry, in that scene where Eric, the boss i guess on the floor has this big you know temper tantrum and starts yelling like what's our number this straight up sub bass in that scene you know with a few overtones but what something i did to get it to work on laptop speakers as well was i have the sub bass which you cannot hear on laptop speakers it's mm-hmm. like you know the lowest frequencies it can be for the human ear but i just duplicated it and put it into a mid-range with the same instrument which is ultimately like a sine wave and it has this kind of like so you can kind of hear this like tone there's zero bass, really, but it sort of gives the illusion of bass when you listen to it on a laptop speaker, and it kind of really works, actually. And then through that, I've also, just through my own listening with other things, you start to, if you hear that, your ear kind of picks up on, oh, okay, if there's bass, there must be a much lower end to it, and you kind of subliminally understand that this is a bassy tone. Very interesting. So, talking about your background a little bit, I know that, you, you know, you started out DJing, making your solo artist music, but I've I've read that actually getting to the scoring world was something that you always had in mind or was always a goal of yours. What helped develop that? Were there any particular movies or composers or scores that really sparked that interest? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is going to sound kind of silly. Well, my mom's my mom's a music teacher. So growing up, there's a lot of music in the house. She was a high school music teacher. So she always sort of pushed me at a very young age, like she was playing the Magic Flute by Mozart, like constantly in the house. And I have very, very vivid memories up until like I was seven or eight of listening to this tape of the Magic Flute. <laughs> that didn't make me want to be like a composer per se, but it definitely opened up the idea of like writing music with a narrative. And then my favorite movie when I was a kid uh, was Mighty Ducks 1 and 2, favorite movies. And the Thomas Newman score in that, I still think to this day is actually like incredibly <laughs> next level. Like, you know, as I said, it sounds funny, but like if you go back and listen to it, it's, or it's not Thomas Newman, it's like Dave, David Newman. They're both big composers. It's so good. Like I just, I've listened to it recently even. Like the melodies are incredible and it, it really flows and it's just, it's way too good for what that movie is, even though I love that movie. And I think that was the first time where I like really started to pick up on a score. Like I had seen Star Wars at this point, but like, I don't know. For so I, you know, the Star Wars score is classic, but it didn't really connect with me in that way. When I, I remember very clearly, the Mighty Ducks was the first time I was like, movie score, like awesome. I want to watch this movie in certain points of this movie specifically for the music. And I used to like re- rewind the VHS we had, for, like very specific <laughs> moments because I thought the music was just so good. And then as I got older, I guess, you know, and started to become more aware and cognizant of like actual composers and stuff. The first person where I really was kind of mind blown was like Vangelis, which if mm. that's not obvious already, like, you know, I, I love a good synth. <laughs> so, um, you know, I saw Blade Runner for the first time in my teens and the movie itself, you know, I could appreciate the effects and everything, but it didn't really grab me as a narrative plot. But the music was like unbelievable. And 
from there, I started exploring more Vangelis. Uh, the, one of the underrated scores, I, I know he won the Oscar, I think, for it, but like Chariots of Fire, the score for that, I mean, I think it's incredible. Oh, yeah. Um, I was, that's a huge influence on me. And then, you know, even like contemporary TV stuff, I remember like watching Mr. Robot, you know, loved the score and that. And that was when I first got to Berlin as well. And I was trying to like think outside of the dance music box, mm-hmm. I guess. This is like 2014. That really started to grab me as well. And yeah, I would, but yeah, I mean, I think that Jealous is the big turning point. And then Akira as well. I'm not sure when I first discovered Akira, but it really did something in my brain because there's an Akira poster there. There's an Akira figure there. <laughs> like uh, I have like a whole shrine in the rest of the studio of just like Akira stuff. But the, yeah, I even did like, you know, a remix album of Akira at one point. Just everything about it. But the score in it really opened up ideas to me. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm not surprised. The percussion in it, is especially, is like yeah. so wild and unlike anything that we hear in like Hollywood movies, for instance. Yeah, totally. And then also, I think the last one I can say, and this has probably been a huge influence on everybody, but uh, it didn't come out until later. But like, I had always imagined score being like atmospheric and this and that. But then when I heard the Social Network, and I was already doing dance mm. music, I was like, okay, wow, this can be score. I guess. I mean, I guess score is anything you say it is and that kind of made me feel more realistic that i could eventually because obviously not all of social network is just like dance music but it's in there right and i thought there was this huge separation between dance music and the prestige of scoring perhaps and that was quite cool for me to see that like oh wow trent reznor can win an oscar scoring with uh you know dance music with some drones and stuff i'm maybe i can try (laughs) scoring and then very quickly soon after i forget when the social network came out but like Around 2015, I got my first, like, opportunity to do proper scoring, and some of these cues that that were called for in that production were dance music, and I was like, Hmm. okay, I mean, this isn't scoring, this is just what I do anyway, but okay, let's go, and uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of funny for me. It also had to be, obviously, like, people had come from non-traditional backgrounds before moving into scoring, you know, like Danny Elfman, for instance. Yeah, sure. But at the same time, like... It also had to be a little reassuring seeing someone like Trent Reznor from industrial, industrial metal background moving into scoring and like and getting very wide acclaim. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's funny, like, you know, you think of him now as like, you know, this he's won like every award you can win, I guess. But I've read interviews with him where he's just talking about like, yeah, like I didn't know what I was doing and <laughs> just handed in a bunch of stuff to David Fincher and he liked it, so... Here we are. And then, like, you know, I just read this interview about him scoring the Mank, like, two years ago. And yeah, had no idea how to write for a band, you know, a brass band, and had to figure it out. And that's that really resonated with me, because often that's kind of how I'm feeling. And then there's this other guy I, I've read a lot of interviews with, Jeff Russo, if you're familiar with mm-hmm. him, who scored, like, The Night Of, and I think Star Trek, among others, and, and Fargo. And he comes from, like, a band background as well. And he's kind of, like, had this great quote I read in an interview where he said, you know, you just take the melodies you write on a guitar and now you're writing them for an orchestra, you know? And I don't think it's quite that simple, but that's really helped me in doing that, I guess. And so for for industry, for both seasons, is the whole score basically done in the box? Yeah, pretty much. And uh, I was lucky to be able to do that as well because I, I got hired for this right before the pandemic mm. and I ordered this big fancy new computer for the job because at the mo- at that time I had this like, seven or eight year old uh, macbook pro Mm -hmm. and i obviously that just wasn't going to work so the pandemic happened there was like you know everything was delayed 
but luckily my computer made it in time for me to start this or it would have been like a nightmare. <laughs> like, I don't think I would have been able to do it, to be honest. But yeah, I'm like huge in the box. And it's quite funny because even before I got into scoring, my own solo music sounds like it's very hardware driven, I guess. And I don't purposefully do that. It just sort of happens from the plugins and the way I work, I guess. But it's always been something I laugh about where like people start referencing synths I don't even know the names of. And... <laughs> And then, you know, everything. He must have a studio. He must have this. But it's like literally like the first season of industry, like I scored in my bedroom during the pandemic. Like really on. Yeah. Like just at my little desk because <laughs> that was what was there. And like I didn't really have everyone was locked down. And even if I had access to like a big studio in Berlin, I probably would have used it because I was kind of making it work. And then at that time, I'd also ordered like a MIDI keyboard, mm. which took forever I had ordered this before the pandemic, but then the pandemic hit and it just, it didn't arrive until like a year later. It's just, everything wow. was backed up. So I actually wrote like all the melodies on it on this, like my little Mac keyboard with like the keys, like A to L in the middle. Cause I just, it was the first season of industry was very much like just trying to make do with what was there. And mm -hmm. I kind of love that now. And even with, I have my keyboard, as you can see to my right here, but like, I still, I still am so used to using my little thing here that I, yeah, I just can write melodies on my keyboard my Mac typing keyboard. Did you find that limiting? Because I remember I, I used to make some music way back when, and I, at first I thought it was like awesome that I could use my laptop keyboard to mess around and write melodies. And then I realized like, oh, this is nice, but it's also like not the most responsive thing either. So using it, was it was it limiting? Or I mean, was it enough to, to get the job done? Now with the projects I'm working on that call for a bit more instrumentation and stuff like orchestration mm -hmm. uh it's it definitely would have been limiting and I, i've been having to use this and i'm happy to use it especially when i one of the things i'm working on now just i had to be like a five minute like piano overture and you know it required both hands on a full keyboard i would not have been able to do that <laughs> with eight keys on a mac keyboard but with industry it was so great because like so much of it is just like soaring synths and like very simple melodies that the limitation actually became a blessing like the main industry riff mm -hmm came purely of me just messing around with like the a s d f g h keys or whatever on my keyboard here and uh yeah i think the limitation actually is what bore a lot of those melodies in the first season of industry it probably would mm -hmm. have sounded very very different i probably would have tried way too much and tried to like overdo it but the simplicity of the score is what i think makes it so effective and that simplicity came from the limitations i had physically working on it so then getting into season two, I don't know when you started actually working on the music, but I assume that that was by the time you were doing that, you had your actual MIDI keyboard. And so some of those restraints were lifted. Did you feel compelled to start making it bigger or did you already have, because you had the palette down from season one, did that, I, you know, I don't want to call it a constraint necessarily, but like, did that kind of continue in? Um... Yeah, what I tried to do in season two was take the palette of season one and try to make it crazier. And one way I tried to make it crazier was I wanted it to be bigger. And there's definitely a few orchestral moments in that that required both hands on this keyboard. But what I tried to do was use a lot more like sequencers and like crazy arpeggiators and things like that to like just see if melodies can be formed on their own. There was no like deeper meaning in it behind it of being like, oh, well, they're they're working with algorithms with finance. So I'm going to work with that with music. But it was honestly just like, let's see where this can go if I just throw in one note and a bunch of sequencers and see what happens. So like a lot of the big trades on those, there's like crazy fast um, arpeggios and melodies. And they're just like, you know, like, 
that honestly just comes from me holding down like one note and like programming a bunch of crazy arpeggiator chains and seeing what comes out of it. And that was really fun. The scary thing about that is like if you tweak something by accident, you can lose that chain very quickly. And if you send something oh. to the directors and producers and they're like, oh, that one. And I, I've already screwed it up. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was one of the big strategies for season two. And then in season two, also, I was given the ability to like use drums, whereas in season one, mm. we really kept it pretty bare bones, like just a shaker once in a while. And so that was fun to be able to like write drums on my keyboard here and be like, boom, bam, and like hit keys and have like big <laughs> kick drums and things like this. There's definitely a couple of moments and and it's like some of the music I think is easy when you're watching the the show. Like it's easy to kind of almost tune it out or lose track of it because it's running in the background and it's the constant repetition of that oscillation. But then when you listen to the album, some of the bass drops or the drums when they kick in are super noticeable and it makes those like three, four, five minute buildups really hit you. Yeah, it was fun to do that because last season it was a very conscious effort of like, well, let's see if we can build this momentum and build this tension and everything without drums. I think there's like one scene where I was, they said like, oh yeah, you could do drums. And I was like, great. But yeah, this season was just suddenly like, let's do it. And I, I sent them some drafts and they said, oh yeah, this works this season and it feels more serious. The stakes seem higher, so let's go for it. But the trick with the drums, it's like, it's so easy to go overboard, I think, and to fall into cliches of like, trailer drums if you know what i mean like mm, yeah. music trailer drums because there's so many plugins and softwares now of just like trailer movie cinematic drums and they all sound very similar and they're all just like way too big unless you're doing you know like han zimmer or something i don't know but uh yeah so that was like a real challenge and like i'm still trying to get like one of the advantages i had from dance music is that often dance music is like less is more mm-hmm. you know you want something to sound good in the club and you want something to be catchy and i've brought that into scoring but like I just could go on way too heavy with trying to pile things up and forget about the dialogue. So having like very stripped back drums has actually been kind of a challenge as well as like an effective use of building tension this season, which has been great. So you've talked about a couple like potential pitfalls. Like if you change the wrong thing in a sequencer or arpeggiator and like how it can totally ruin the chain or that where using the drums, it can be really easy to have it kind of take over everything else but like those have all been in the hypothetical did you ever actually run into any issues either with those or anything else on season two that something kind of either didn't work you had an issue with it things like that yeah i mean i had a lot of drafts where it was like staccato strings and like trying to show off my new string skills that i (laughs) worked really hard over the last years to develop but it just didn't really fit into the palette of the show you know but other than that, not really. There was a few times where I tried to throw some piano in there. And there, there is piano that's like in mm-hmm. the show, especially in some of the darker scenes. But it just didn't really need to be there. And it, it was quite cool to just sort of, you know, the first season, there's like soaring synths. And there's, you know, everything's very like Vangelis and grand. And this season, it was a bit more like one tricks point never, if you're familiar with him. And very yeah. much like, let's get crazy granular and like weird, weird synth work. And that required just like, the way to go about that, I think, is like you can very easily just take a synth, I guess, and try to get crazy with it by fiddling around. But by taking a very simple like sine wave C note, and as I said, like putting a bunch of sequencers on it, you can make it do its own craziness, and the textures and the insanity will just come naturally. Then the trick is to write like the everything around it. So like mm-hmm. the bass and the pads around it, those can start getting crazy behind it and being harmonic. And yeah, again, like I have all, I get my new plugins. I like 
or I get my new microphone or something. I'm like, I'm gonna do all this string stuff, but it's not the right project. Whereas one of the projects I'm working on now, I'm finally getting to do all that stuff. And listening to it, another name that I kind of thought of when I was listening to it earlier this morning was uh, was Blank Mass too. Someone again who has yeah. like an electronic background, moving into scoring and like also does just like a ton of weird synth electronic stuff. You know, not yeah, not everyone's like into that, Mass. but like I love that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never actually spoken to or met Blank Mass, but um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. There's two albums ago, the one with the teeth. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, I don't remember if that one is World Leader or something. Yeah, that's or maybe it, World I'm Leader. Thinking, okay. Yeah, like that album was so cool. And um, that's actually been temp on quite a few, not in industry, really? but other projects I've worked on, which is quite cool. But yeah, like when I first got into scoring or non scoring started on the first season of industry and obviously it was a big learning curve and I was I've already mentioned Trent Reznor but I was looking like at other dance music offshoot artists I guess that had gone into scoring because I was having a lot of sort of self-doubt about it and Blank Mass mm-hmm. is one of the names I found yeah super cool oh that's that's awesome and I actually talked with him earlier this year for my in my second season also super nice guy so if you ever get the chance to meet him you know I'm... yeah I've listened to interviews with him he seems like a super interesting dude yeah, he is. And again, I, I think there's there's a similarity there of when you have that particular background. And like, I know I'm making a broad category, but having the the comfort of making things in isolation in the box, that skill's already there. So I, I, I think that really pays dividends for composers like you guys. For sure. But it's also, I kind of wish, you know, you read about composers who come through this, I guess, composer system that I'm only sort of mm-hmm. learning about that exists where, you you know, you assistant for somebody else and then you learn the ropes with them. And I kind of, I don't think it would have made sense for me to go through that route, but it's, I sort of have an envy for people who did because they learn about the recording of an orchestra process and all this stuff. But at the same time, it, you know, that could probably lead to very similar results over and over. And if you take someone like me who has, you know, I played an orchestra when I was younger, but I've never recorded an orchestra <laughs> Not that I'd be the one recording it, but like I'd probably come up with some like very unintentionally weird results from doing that, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like it just seems like if you come up through having a mentor or being an assistant to a larger composer in some sort of outfit, you can learn so much through that. And my outfit and composer mentor, I guess, is YouTube because I oft, honestly, <laughs> like, you know, um, not with industry, but with like other stuff I've been working on, trying to figure out like, you know, tonal shifts with an orchestra or like how to write for you know what's the difference between writing for like a 16 piece and a 32 piece orchestra and things like this and there's so much out there and there's so much so many resources and it's the same way i learned how to make dance music was honestly through youtube when i was like 20 so it's kind of just feels like an elevated or not i don't want to dismiss dance music but not elevated but like a more complex Hmm. journey of that i guess so you know learning those things do those then feed back into your artist albums or solo music that you're making as well? Yeah, I mean, like my new album that I've just finished, it's like definitely very cinematic and there's like a lot of interesting instru- instrumentation that I probably wouldn't have had the chutzpah to try and include before, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if people receive it well, but like there's like crazy guitars and strings and even a saxophone at some point. And uh, I used to be kind of scared to include interesting instrumentation like that because i thought it was kind of frowned upon in certain circles of dance music Mm -hmm. and electronic music and i've tried to sort of position myself as more of an electronic musician rather than a dance music musician over the years and i I hopefully this album is really solidifies that plus the scoring obviously but like yeah it's definitely influenced it 
Is there a tentative or solidified release date for that album? I, I'm sworn to secrecy on that one for now, but uh, <laughs> next year, assuming you know, right. supply, world supply stuff or the world doesn't you know get crazier. But uh, yeah, hopefully next year, early next year. Yeah, just waiting. It's just vinyl stuff. Everything with vinyl takes forever now. I think that's so wild. I mean, like in one sense, it's it's nice that like vinyl has gotten a like increasing surge in popularity, but seeing some of the lead times, like six yeah. plus months, is yeah. Nuts. Oh, I wish six plus months. My God. <laughs> oh, is, is I just it put out like... a reissue on? I, I run a reissue label called Eternal Schwitz. I just reissue like obscure old dance music, and the last one I put out took ten months. Wow. Which is crazy, but I mean, it's a very. I'm pressing like five hundred copies, and it's pretty obscure stuff. So it's probably at the bottom of the like food chain. Yeah, I mean, you know, when when Adele releases her album on vinyl, like that eats up. Oh, yeah, that's what happened actually. Adele put out her album, and it was like yeah. I think they pressed five hundred thousand copies. Wow. It needed like every plant in the world for like, a month or something. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's crazy. It used to take about four months. Now it's, I guess, ten. Anyway, so next year, hopefully. Okay. We'll all be uh, on the lookout. Yours open for that. But it's an interesting point you made how using quotes, like weirder instrumentations or instruments could be frowned upon. Because like, I, I think that's like a common thread throughout a lot of genres. And especially like the more niche down you get within those genres. People like things a particular way, and when you start adding new things in, it's like frowned upon or looked at as a gimmick, which like I find is such a boring stance to take. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's kind of ending, like especially in electronic music. For instance, like this group One Hundred Gex, if you know them, like no, they make probably the most abrasive music at the moment. It's like, but they've just taken like pop sensibilities, mixed it with trap music, and then like screamo metal, and I've actually taken to it quite well. But like, I just bring them up because it's just such an example of they've kind of gained fans in electronic music and in rap music and in, I guess, metal music probably as well. But through them, you can really see this like trickle-down effect of in dance music, like people taking risks more and having more like abrasive, like metal-y tendencies. I don't even listen to metal, but like I'm finding it really refreshing to hear that. And then, like, you take someone, like I mentioned earlier, like, One Tricks Point Never, who for me is, like, a huge influence on everything I do, but just constantly, like, meshing sounds and genres in a way that probably couldn't have before. And then if you get onto, like, the very base level of, like, clubs, when I first moved to Berlin, um, this club I play at in Berlin, it's called Berkhein, if you've heard of it. Mm-hmm. It has an upstairs called Panorama Bar, which is, Berkhein's, like, a, I guess it's kind of, like, they call it, like, the Temple of Techno. It's, like, the most famous club. And uh, it has this huge main room called Barrakine where it's techno and like very purist techno. And on the second floor, it was meant to be like a house and disco kind of club. And that's more where I play. And when I first started playing there, you didn't play anything but house and disco, I guess. And then I started playing there around 2015 and I, I would throw in some sort of trance prog house tendencies. And I remember very clearly like the woman doing the lights at the time came over to me and was like, no one has played this before, you know? <laughs> and I got some pretty angry comments on a feature I did on Resident Advisor when they still had a comment section. And like my friend Avalon Emerson played there and she was playing like breaks and all these interesting types of subgenres that I don't know because I hadn't been there beforehand, but like apparently you just didn't really hear there so mm. often. And now you go there and there is just like everything. And I'm not trying to credit myself. I think Avalon had a much bigger part of this and there's countless other artists who did as well, but like this next movement of electronic music like if you could play them in that club, you can play them in any club because that club's kind of like the standard bearer of dance music, in my opinion. Even in like dance music, it's so much more varied. Like there's another famous club in Berlin called um, 
club divisionaire, which is more traditionally like minimal house music, like bare bones, just groovy. And now you go there and you hear all kinds of interesting music, uh, which I've been told you mm. did like absolutely did not hear like five years ago there. Maybe it's the internet or maybe people have just got bored during the pandemic. Um, but like, <laughs> I think the walls are definitely coming down between like genres of music. And I don't know what it's like in film and composing world because I'm sort of still a noob as far as like being an active participant in it. But like Dune, I brought, I mentioned that earlier, but like that seemed like a pretty like hybrid crazy score. You know, it still had Hans Zimmer, Hans's like, you know, like chugga, chugga, chugga strings, but yeah. definitely beyond that for sure. It's a weird fandom from like the listener and, you know, journalistic perspective, because I think there are so many people that are still like stuck on the more classical, traditional way to do it. Like, that's how you should be scoring everything. Especially now, where, like, so many people can come in and you don't even need a bunch of hardware. Like, you can just, you know, have your computer and, like, make things that are very weird. There are some people who, like, love that. I came from, like, a metal and drone and noise background. So, like, I love hearing just, like, really weird approaches. But I think it's still taking a while to catch on more broadly. I think it's still in the, the earlier days of, like, some of those clubs that you're mentioning. Yeah, I mean, and you could look at it on an even, like, wider base of, like, pop music, I guess. And, like, house music's been around for, like, 20, 30 years now. Mm -hmm. But now suddenly Beyonce and Drake are putting out, like, house music albums. Yeah. So who knows if in three years you'll have Drake singing over a bunch of drones, which I could totally <laughs> see happening, you know? Who knows what the next, like, sub-genre to be picked from will be on, like, mainstream music. But, like, clearly right now it's house music. And uh, I could totally, totally see it like being some next level avant-garde thing. Like One O Tricks Point Never just produced The Weeknd's new album. Really? Yeah. And like, it's not drone super avant-garde, like, but it has like avant-garde flourishes and that'll trickle its way down into like The Weeknd's listeners being like, oh, that's really cool production. Who did that? Oh, this guy. Yeah. Let's listen to it. Oh, okay. Maybe a bit too much for me, but like, cool. They'll come back probably in a couple of years, try it again and it'll click like, that's that happens so often like there's so many albums i listened to that i found out about because they worked with somebody else and then at that time it just wasn't I either wasn't ready for it or i wasn't in the right headspace and then i'll check it out a couple years later and i just totally totally click with it i love the openness because i think a lot of people and especially when they have like the rigidity and like you know feeling like they're guarding a genre they don't want it to be watered down and used in another style or like something poppy but I agree, like, that's that's the way that you get more people interested in things they wouldn't otherwise listen to. Yeah. I mean, my favorite YouTube comment of 2020 or 2021 was someone on the Soul, like, you know, this Disney movie Soul on the mm -hmm. comment section being like, well, if you had told me in 1991 that, like, you know, <laughs> sex symbol Trent Reznor, who wrote Closer, would be writing the music my kids are vibing out to, I wouldn't have believed you. But, like here we are. And I just thought that was so funny, but it's so true to the moment we're in where it's like, it seems like in the nineties or eighties, there would have been this whole like sellout mentality or yeah. like huge separation between like commerce and huge, you know, movie studio entities and like seemingly independent or underground counterculture music. And now for better or worse, it seems like those walls have kind of come down and you can have Trent Reznor scoring. Like I was, incredible at that score like i thought it was incredible but um scoring a children's movie for pixar you know or a family yeah. movie rather and uh, i just think that's super super cool and so obviously like 
you and I weren't around in the scene in the, the 80s, for instance. So it's a little bit of theorizing. But, like, what do you think has kind of led to that shift over time? I think in music broadly, it's just that, like, the money's kind of dried up. Like, there used to be, you know, this theory in music and art, like, like the long tail which mm -hmm. I think was like this theory that came out in the, in the mid 2000s where it's like, same as like, I guess like trickle down economics where it's like, say, you know, the biggest pop star of the time uses a certain style of music that'll be picked from. And then eventually it'll make its way down to like the fans of that will eventually make its way down to like the more niche subcultures. But now because you can't press 5,000 copies of a drone album anymore, at least not as probably much as you could in the nineties and make a living from it the money's just not there as much. And then like in counterculture of like clubbing, it's now kind of been taken by Boiler Room or other online YouTube things. And they're all funded by corporate sponsorship hmm. because it's kind of the only way to go about it, if that makes sense, I guess. So, you know, if I was in the 90s as a dance music artist, I could probably press 10, 20,000 copies of my new single. There'd be enough of a market to buy it. They'd have to pay a price for it and I could make a pretty good living. Now I'm lucky if I sell 500 copies and the costs of it are so much more that you make even less anyways. But, you know, I have to put my music on Spotify, which is huge corporate company. And then I have to play Boiler Room or something that gets sponsored by like Ray-Ban or Vodka or whatever. And every festival I play at sponsored by Vodka. So it's like there's no escaping the corporate overlords anyway. So I suppose, and I'm not saying this as someone who's like, you know, anti this or anti that, but like, it's just, I think is what it is. And, uh, I just think the walls of this have kind of naturally separated. Also, like if you talk about people who are like in their 40s and 50s who were like megastars in the 90s, at a certain point, it's like, it's pretty incredible if you can, if you've sustained a musical career until your 50s, I think you don't have anything else to prove. Yeah. Like who knows what you've had to do to sustain that anyway. So if you're like in your 50s, I'm not speaking about Trent Reznor, just in general, if you were able to like have a huge impact on counterculture in the 90s, like, do what you want to do now. And if you want to score like a new Muppets movie, like power to you, honestly. <laughs> but I think that's the main thing of it. It's just, yeah, there is no separation between underground and overground anymore because I mean, the internet's kind of democratized or opened it all up. So why try to make that stand? Like, obviously I think it's cool when artists make a stand about certain ethical issues that they have. And I, I do, I've done the same, but there's just no escaping a corporate sponsorship anymore, whether it be a movie studio or mm. a, vodka brand or this or that actually that's a bad comparison i wouldn't call a movie studio a vodka brand but you know what i mean like yeah if there's a paycheck involved like gonna get it either way and spotify seems like a interesting area and like a big lightning rod where and then i don't know what like your exact listeners are but like having 40 50 000 monthly listeners seems like that's a ton but then when you actually like look at the numbers behind everything and the payout rates for for that or for like any of the streaming competitors how do you make a living from that yeah like i to be quite honest i don't even have spotify partly out of like ethical moral standing for myself but also just it's just not how i want to consume music necessarily mm -hmm. like i still listen to music a ton on youtube but at least with youtube there's so much weird stuff out there and i, I enjoy the communal aspect of youtube much more where like I can find some like very obscure song or album and there's a huge discourse in the comment section that you can learn stuff from or there's sometimes even comments from the artists and that at least kind of has some sort of community feeling and some sort of scene feeling whereas if I go on Spotify it's like oh well, give them a tip you know <laughs> it's like 
Yeah. It's just kind of bleak, and uh, there isn't really that whole communal feeling for it. But I guess it's true. Like, in my room at my parents' house, my mom, I forget what year this was, but I got my first ever, like, royalty check from the Canadian ASCAP. <laughs> um, or is that ASCAP? That's, like, the royalty collections, right, in the, in the United States? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so we ours is called SoCan, and it was, like, 0.04 cents, and it's, like, this cute big check that they send you on your first one it says like my first royalties my mom has it framed in my old room and it was just like you know it's pretty real though it's like i don't know what kind of streaming i had at that point but it's like less than a cent on a check (laughs) not not the best but um as far as making a living now like i don't know like most of my dj friends tour as djs you know and that can add up pretty quick i think some of these big djs can make a fortune you know, obviously that was taken away during the pandemic. And I think that was yeah. a real wake up call for a lot of DJs and artists. And I, my heart really goes out to people who suddenly were in that situation. I was very blessed to get hired for industry at the same time as the, everything was shutting down. But um, yeah, I guess, I guess you just really have to diversify. I mean, like, I'm not really the most outspoken or more or like, you know, outwardly person on social media in general. But like, you can very quickly see how that has become part of the job of being a musician. Yeah. And I'm trying to get better at it, but like what I love so much about scoring and like building reputation within scoring is just like, I think it's one of the last bastions of music where it's like literally the music speaks for itself in a certain way. Like you obviously have to have time management and work well in a team and just generally try not to be like rude to people and then also be willing to take like, you know, the most rejection and criticism ever. (laughs) Because like, you know. As I said before, I came from a background and all musicians who start on their own usually come from a background where they can call every shot of everything they make. But when you're doing scoring, you're hired for a client or for someone else's vision, which I kind of love and being able to like see the whole thing come together where they tell me a few ideas and I the synergy of what's in their head and what I somehow create through my foolery and seeing what happens. But yeah, I mean, scoring has been a way where I really feel like music has value monetarily, but even more so just like people enjoying it in a context that isn't necessarily just skipping through a Spotify track. And if that happens with the OST, that's fine. But I've gotten a lot more messages from like people who enjoyed it in the context of the show, which I think is really satisfying. Yeah. And I've seen some things popping around on like Twitter, for instance, about the industry season two score. And like, obviously it hasn't been released. So it's solely talking about it in the context. Well, that's it. Right. And that's why we've kind of I mean, there's other reasons why we've had to delay it that I referenced earlier of just like the world, but like, mm-hmm. um, it's been kind of cool to see people writing. I've had a lot of messages from people being like, oh, this scene, like so cool. Like that synth during that scene. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And I get a lot, like a lot of messages from finance people who, you know, it's not, really? yeah, it's not a field I have anything directly to do with like professionally, but like I got like just yesterday, I got this crazy message from some, I looked them up on Twitter. They're like a huge crypto hedge fund person, but they're just like, I've got the industry theme on repeat all the time while I'm doing the reports or whatever. And it was just like (laughs) hilarious to me to think that like that translates to like the show in real life, like real life industry people, you know? Well, it's, it's awesome. Like it, it does go full circle too, talking about people that wouldn't otherwise Listen, it's like, look, obviously there's going to be people that go clubbing and, and listen to electronic music and finance and like everything else, but those aren't necessarily the only people watching industry. Yeah, totally. But like, yeah, these finance people, like, you know, maybe some of them listen to my solo music, but I doubt it. I doubt it's like a talking point within finance music. Like, oh, Nathan's new album, you know, but like <laughs> the score for industry about, which is a show that we can relate to and that trickles down to them listening in their lives. Like it's the same very clearly, like when Lord of the Rings came out, I had no real 
interest in choral music but you better believe i still like play that stuff on the regular now <laughs> and i'm just like yes like give me that like shire theme with the flutes you know <laughs> but it's the context of like thinking about it in that movie that gets me so excited about it whereas if you know i was walking down the street and someone was playing a pan flute i probably wouldn't have gone that excited you know what i mean <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah it's even like with guitar like i remember when i was a kid my parents would play me like jazz guitar records and just like generally get my uncle's like a classical guitarist and he's incredibly talented but as like a young kid i wasn't exactly that taken in by like you know classical guitar but then you show me like pink floyd or mm. something else i was listening to in my teen years and it shows you the guitar in a whole new context in a whole new way you start to appreciate that but then when you turn like 25 and you're like whoa that classical guitar stuff's crazy like i want to learn how to play that now that i've figured out the guitar but you've entered the guitar through a totally different context and as you mature you like can appreciate that like wow okay like my uncle's guitar playing is next level maybe i should try to learn how to do that that's kind of how it's been for me i had the same experience with guitar i mean you can see i have two behind me but like listening to certain metal bands like metallica or like sepultura for instance who would just randomly have like brazilian folk instruments and like classic guitar and in the middle of all this thrash metal you know, when you're 15 listening to that, hell yeah, it opens your eyes and your ears yeah, to totally. the whole world of possibilities. It's awesome. Yeah. I think that's like one of the beauties of scoring. It's like there's so many types of music that I honestly probably never would have considered or still even like listened to. But I've heard them in certain movies where I'm like, whoa, like awesome. You start to explore it beyond the movie and it might not take beyond the movie, but at least like you opened your eyes to this other world that exists. Like that was one of the things with The Social Network too. I remember reading interviews with... Trent Reznor shortly after that, or at least once I became more aware of it, you know, they were referencing, some, talking about some of their references and like Nine Inch Nails era, like noise music. And mm. I had no idea, like I knew the Nine Inch Nails, but I didn't really know them that well at that time. But like, yeah, exploring like tons of other stuff. And it's like, you can see the context and the influences that go into the people that you love's scores. And that's super cool for me. Awesome. Nath, we're, we're running out of time before I let you go. I did want to ask if there's any idea of uh, when the industry season two release date might be for the score. As far as I know, November. Okay. For a digital Spotify release for everyone who listens on Spotify. But as for the vinyl, I think early next year. Okay. So it's one of these classic post-pandemic situations of like pre-release for the vinyl and then digital. But yeah, November. <laughs> I, I believe November because it just came out on BBC for like the UK release and hmm. wanted to wait till everyone got to see it till we released it. Oh, makes sense. But I have the masters and they sound good. Also, I've heard it and if we had more time, I would actually like really love to dig into how you put the score release together because like I said, there's a ton of music on the show, but there's only like 12 or 13 tracks. So curious about that. Someone else who uh, who does another interview with you will, will have to ask. Well, I'll give you a one minute answer because it's pretty okay. easy. Pretty much, you know, a majority of the cues in any show or movie can be quite short. And even like a 30 second cue can be incredibly memorable. So trying to fit that as a, I always find it kind of a cop out when you buy a record and it has these like 30 second yeah. tracks. So with the first season of industry, which I'm sure many people noticed as with this one, I tried to create mel medleys mm. where you take like four 30 second cues and then somehow work some magic to connect them all. And I kind of stole the idea from Thomas Newman who did this incredible 15 minute medley for less than zero in the 80s or 90s, I forget which decade that movie came out in, but I love that score. And if you search, that score never actually got officially released. So 
all he did was put out this like 15 minute medley of all the best cues and it's like 30 40 seconds of each cue and it's really cool so um he kind of tried to do that with this because there's so many scenes and cues as you said but like create a two minute medley of three of them four of them and it, it works awesome so I, I didn't think we'd get to that so I'm glad you could you could cover it in yeah. actually probably pretty close Efficiency. to a minute. Scoring, yeah. you got to be efficient. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Nathan, thanks again for for joining me. Um, I I've actually like really been digging the show. I oh great, and I'll I'll confide. I, I still have three episodes left. Well, the last three of the season two, I think, are like some of the best TV, and I say this without bias. Like seriously, like very good TV. Yeah, so I'm I'm like I'm stoked because it's it's built up quite well, and like like you, I have. No, you know, finance connection, but it truly doesn't matter. But thanks again for joining me. Great chatting about the show, about music, about a whole yeah, bunch of stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. it. Of course.